Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek program. A smaller-than-expected increase for consumer prices. That the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Now, Austerity 2.0, we talked about it last time, and how, if you understand how government deficits work, it isn't at all necessary to embark on austerity right now. But this week, what happens to that money? What does it mean for the private sector if the government spends more? We'll be exploring what's called sectoral balance, that when the government deficit increases, money in the private sector also increases, which would mean reducing the government deficit also hurts the private sector, the sector that the government hopes to see grow. So how do you get the balance right between the public and private sector spending? It's a symbiotic relationship that we'll explore today. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with me and Steve Keen. Well, last week we talked about money creation by the public sector, how rather than austerity, uh, the government should be spending more at times like this, even if it meant increasing what most people would see as public debt, because that money created by the government, uh, as we talked about last week, is issued as bonds uh, and sold to, uh, to sold to banks, basically, who substitute their cash reserves for those bonds. Now, I want to explore more of that, and in, in particular the interplay between how much money sits in the public sector and how much sits in the private sector. Uh, So, Steve, maybe let's – I mean, we'll pick up where we were last time, actually, because it was an interesting discussion. I'm I'm a government, and I issue a billion dollars' worth of extra spending. So uh, I use a billion pounds worth of of bonds to to, basically to support that. I issue a billion pounds' worth of bonds. The commercial banks buy them up. So for them, as we were talking about last week, they are exchanging cash reserves, which they have to keep in reserve, but they swap them for bonds. Uh, and so they do that. They now have a billion pounds worth of bonds, and the money that has they did have that they've released by buying those bonds has gone to the government, and the government then spends that money, which means, of course, it is out in the private sector because they've got to get people to, to do stuff. So there is this direct relationship, isn't there, between the private sector and the government. If the government creates money, it basically adds to, I mean, the government's debt, as you know, or the, the, the government's deficit, I should say, is actually increasing the amount of money that's out in the private sector. There's an interplay between the two, a direct relationship. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to go through the banks buying bonds either. Uh, the, the fundamental story is the bank's neg- the government's negative equity becomes the positive equity of the remainder of society, whichever way mm. you uh, with it, whichever way. But that's the way it does happen in reality. I mean, yeah. government doesn't go into deficit without issuing bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. But I mean, I just did that to illustrate the fact that yes, I mean, it's and, and they, the, that can keep on happening, of course, can't it? Because when the government issues that money or spends that money, of course, it finds its way into 
Because I think I, I said last week, well, that could keep on happening, couldn't it? Until uh, there's no uh, there's no reserves left in in those commercial banks. But of course, that, there will always be reserves because when the, the reserve, government the, the, the reserves are created by the spending process itself, and it's yeah. created by the payment of interest on bonds as well. Mm. So if you uh, like, if you have uh, uh, the government issuing bonds to cover the deficit, it also issues bonds to cover the payment on outstanding debt. Now, uh, so, so the money that pays the interest is created by the government, just like the money created by the spending itself. Yeah. It's a creation of government, not borrowing it from anywhere. Yeah. And that adds to the short-term equity of the banking sector. So that's part of the profitability of the banking sector. But it also adds to the reserves. And uh, the special little trick that I've realized in putting these models together is, of course, central banks buy and sell bonds off the private banks all the time, what they call open market operations. And under QE, they bought enormous quantities of bonds. But if they simply restricted themselves to roughly on average buying bonds equivalent to the interest rate, interest payments on bonds, so let's say there's a so there's a trillion pounds of bonds outstanding and the and the uh, rate of uh, interest was three percent on those bonds, then if the if if the net buying of the Bank of England in this case was thirty billion pounds, then that actually increases the reserves by thirty billion pounds. Uh, so the so the gradual build up of bonds by the central bank uh, also causes a gradual increase in the reserves. So the reserves continue being replenished by government operations, whether that's the Treasury running a deficit or the central bank buying bonds off the off the private banks. But I mean, reserves, let's revisit what reserves are and how reserves get there. If I've got some cash and I take it into my bank and say, I want to put that in my bank account, that the bank says, great, we're going to stick that in our reserves. That's how reserves are created, isn't it? Yeah, well, and that's actually a good way to think about it as well, because what's going on there, if you bring in, you know, 10 crisp 10 pound notes and deposit those at your local Barclays bank, Barclays then puts those 10 actual physical pounds, 10, 10, 10 pound notes in its safe. They may get transferred later, but that's where they initially go. So the actual money you've given to the bank ends up in their vault, which is part of the reserve. So the reserves are actually holding the physical money in this case. And then the bank effectively gives you a receipt because it writes to a number 100 plus 100 onto your bank account. So you've got a record. Uh, they've got the actual cash. But then when you look at uh, what can be done with that, the, the, it goes the other way. The bank can't spend that money whatever it likes, whereas you can spend that receipt on whatever you like. Mm. So you get a, a – and, and I think that's a very useful framework for people to think about um, money creation yeah. in general. So when, so when the government says, right, we are going to spend a billion pounds – uh, that billion pounds is put into various people's bank accounts as they as they spend that money. Yep. So that money becomes that billion pounds, in effect, as far as those banks are concerned, becomes reserves as well. Yeah, doesn't it? it's a billion pound increase in their reserve levels. So if right. you if you deposit so am- if you deposit cash as an individual, the cash the the vault reserves the banks have go up by the amount you deposit, and they record that as an increase in your. Um, deposit account with them, and that's all internal banking behaviour. But the way that the government does this, they use the private banking sector as a conduit to reach the public. So they um, put what they what they do is they there's an initial transfer at the central bank from the from the treasury's account of the central bank across to the 
bank accounts of the relevant private banks. If you're a bank at Barclays, then you know, and you're getting a hundred quid from the government for some, you know, some COVID compensation, uh, then that hundred quid is a hundred hundred quid fall on the treasury account, a hundred quid rise in the reserve account of Barclays, and then Barclays puts that hundred pound receipt. Uh, in your account as well. So at the at the bank's own level, the reserves go up uh, when the government spends as to its liabilities, which is your deposit account. Right. So they never, when I said last week, well, the government can keep on issuing bonds until uh, banks have bought them all, uh, that'll never happen, will it? Because there will always be more money. If, if basically, if, I, if, if the government spends a billion pounds it's going to issue a billion pounds worth of bonds to cover that. But that billion pounds is also going to find itself in increasing the value of reserves in commercial banks by a billion pounds. That's right. And, they, and therefore, they've got a, a billion pounds in reserves, which has been created by the deficit. Yeah. And so long as the interest rate on bonds is greater than the interest rate on reserves, and that is the common case now, one of those Canadian... Oh, do I be rude or not? One of those Canadian obsessives who believe... Let's be nice to everyone from now on, Steve. Let's, let's okay, one of those. Just, I'll just call them obsessives rather than idiots. <laughs> They're not okay. that nice, but yeah, okay. Uh, okay, okay. So they, they, they sort of said, oh, you know, you haven't included uh, interest being paid on reserves in your model. Give me a break. So long as the interest rate on bonds is greater than the interest rate on reserves, any bank that turns down the offer of converting reserves into banks into, into money is an idiot itself. And I'll, I'll never accuse banks of not being greedy. So if you get a you know a three percent return on something versus a two point seven five percent return on the other, and they're both you know, as safe as very very intrinsically safe assets, bank government bonds in one case, reserves in the other, you'll switch out of reserves into bonds. So the the buying power to buy the bonds is created by the deficit itself. Right, but if you have lots and lots, say you you know you, uh, the, uh, the government goes, oh look, we just issued a, a billion pounds. And hey, look, banks are still buying them up. Let's do it again. Let's do another billion tomorrow. Uh, and hey, look, they're still buying them without realizing that's because you know they've, they've got all this extra reserve sitting in their bank account. So mm. why not? I mean, that could go on forever. So what is the downside of that? Apart from the question mark about you know how much money generally is in circulation as a as a result of this, but I mean the the value of those bonds is going to keep on falling, of course. Uh, so there's there's going to be no incentive at all for those banks then to say well okay let's sell these onto onto the secondary market they're going to they're going to stick there in their reserve accounts you mean if, you, you mean if we, if we do our case i was talking about in the last podcast about the government offering a lower rate on primary yeah on the bonds yeah, okay 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 because i mean yeah. but even because there's well even even if you know the, the rates are going to find that their own level aren't they on the in the in the secondary market if they if you flood the market with government bonds if the if the if the you know the there's so many bonds now sitting in reserve in these commercial banks the value of those bonds is going to diminish markedly because there's so many of them around now it's going to be hard to get rid of them because they're going to be worthless and that whole secondary market uh, scenario i'm not quite sure whether it's good or bad for the world if we don't have bonds trading in the secondary market but that's just going to collapse if you get to the stage where there's just so many government bonds being issued because they they they're falling in value all the time i think we've ended up in zimbabwe and i didn't know we were going for a train flight 
Um, <laughs> if, if you if you do something, you know, if you drink an infinite amount of water, you're going to drown. Um, you know, so, like, <laughs> there are you know, if you jump out of the top of a skyscraper, you're going to die. Yeah, uh, if, right. If you hop, okay, if you hop but I'm take step, that take that to the extreme. But the, all, all I'm doing is using it as a point to illustrate. There's a balance that yeah. has to be had here, isn't there? Between the the interplay between how many bonds you issue, uh, and you know, the, the, there's still the secondary market. You've got to be aware. Yeah. Of. Well, yeah. I mean, you. Uh, like I'm saying at the moment that you don't have to be. The secondary market doesn't have to be allowed to drive the primary market. That analogy of the schoolyard yeah. versus the, yeah. school, the classroom that I used in that last podcast. Um, so you could indefinitely issue bonds with a lower yield than the secondary market had, and therefore those bonds would accumulate in the bank in the in the assets of the banking sector, and they would be earning whatever rate is offered on that. That even is like a you know three percent rate when the rate on the uh, on the open market is six. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to sell them without taking a loss, but you were still getting the income of 3% on the bonds, which is part of what covers the cost of having, of maintaining the payment system. So the banks, uh, in one sense, I think one reason the banks sell so many of the bonds they get these days, when we still have, you know, a a close parity between the primary and secondary markets, so they don't face a, a capital loss when they sell the bonds. The reason they sell them so so much is that they are making most of their money out of the interest they're earning on private debt they've created and they don't really need the income flow from the from the bonds but if you had less private money being created for speculative purposes and uh, you know much lower level of income for the banks coming out of lending where well, lending we much more proportional to the real economy rather mm. than proportional to the speculative when maelstrom of of Wall Street and uh, the City of London. If you do that, then banks are likely to want to hang on to bonds more because they'd still be there getting the income flow, the cash flow from the rate of, rate of yeah. return on so bonds. So it might be a more stable world in which we live. In that case, so Win Godley, I mean, was what we what we've been talking about today really is about sectoral balances, isn't it? The, the government has a budget deficit. Mm. The private sector must have a surplus. So, uh, so basically, the government spends that money, as we've been talking about, and that money finds itself in 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 private bank accounts. The private sector grows as a result of this. So, when Godley talked about this, this is sort of like the you know the the core basis for modern monetary theory, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that's this is the absolutely realistic side of it, which is what it makes it so frustrating to see the nonsense mm. being spewed by uh, the, the the Nobel Prize Committee and so on about Bernanke's ludicrous approach. And the and the obsolete vision of money creation that's still taught in textbooks. The fact that that is still believed is just frustrating to anybody who knows the actual accounting. So I call modern monetary theory accounting. That's what fundamentally the the, the absolutely incontrovertible components of modern monetary theory are simply what you get when you lay out the accounting mm. in double entry terms uh, for an integrated view of a monetary economy. So it's not theory it's not a suggestion of the way things could be it is actually an explanation of the way things are actually happening that's right i like i'm doing a, a you know i had that the frieda guard award a couple of weeks ago in germany i'm re-recording uh, the workshops that i did there because we didn't actually finish all the lectures or the workshops i intended giving and in that i just show you how within about 20 minutes flat you can build a model of the monetary system in minsky and see quite clearly that the scale of the government's net negative equity, so the amount the government owes effectively, is equal to the net financial assets of the of the non-government sector. So all this obsession on reducing government debt 
when you look at it in the integrated fashion, is actually saying, let's reduce private sector equity. Now, that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's the last thing they think they're doing. So look, we'll, we'll ex- examine more of that, how actually the opposite of austerity is exactly what's needed. We talked about it last week, uh, but also just exploring the whole thing a bit further. And, and also, when times are good, how do you turn it around the other way? We'll look at that next on the Debunking Economics podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, we've spoken about how when the government spends more, it pushes more into the private sector. So when government spending increases, when the government deficit increases, actually it's helping the uh, the private sector because more money is going into the private sector. And you'd hope as well that the multiplier effect would see that that money would move around the private sector economy, the real economy, it would move around faster thanks to this pump priming by the government. That's that. It's how the money the government spends that money that counts, doesn't it? So I mean, we're we're situation right now where you might go, well, okay, we want to pay uh, doctors and nurses more and council workers more, and that person who uh, issued me with a, uh, a a parking ticket twice last week, maybe they should be paid more. Maybe they should be paid not to work at all. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the. Uh, However, the government spends that money. Um, I mean, even if you know paying doctors and nurses more, you'd say, well, that, is that helping the economy? Well, it is because they've got more money sitting in their bank account. Therefore, they can go and buy more stuff, uh, and they might be uh, more inclined to keep their you know keep working as well, <laughs> which would be good too. So, I mean, there's a question about how the government spends money. It's not just infrastructure. Infrastructure obviously is an investment for the future. That is creating benefits. You'd hope it's creating efficiency down the line. But there's you know right now we're in this scenario where it's difficult to do that. Isn't it? Because infrastructure requires people to build it, you know, and supposedly, if you believe the statistics, uh, unemployment is, you know, close to an all time low. It's going to be hard to find people to do those jobs. But that doesn't mean you can't spend more to actually invest in uh, in, in those core jobs that pe- people are leaving, like like doctors and nurses and education and all the things that involve people who could just be paid a bit more to do the job and maybe they'll do it a bit better as well and, and we'll all benefit from that. And certainly they'll keep that job and they won't leave and retire early, which we're seeing a lot of at the moment. We are. And like when you understand the situation of, of doctors, for example, the amount of training you have to go through, the, the rigours of the training system and the effective apprenticeship period when you, you know, 
you're on call for a 24 hour period over, a, you know, three, three 24 hour periods in a row over a weekend, uh, which is quite a common situation for doctors. And then to be getting the pay rates that apply in the UK, it's just dreadful. So you look at it and think, why should I be a doctor? I'd be better off being a speculator on the financial markets and we get more speculators and less doctors. And that's the last <laughs> direction we want to, you know, that it, 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 they'll do very well individually for a while, but it's not what society needs. And that's a large mm. part of the government spending is to provide the basic services that mean you can maintain a civilised society uh, where the poor uh, can receive less than they need for their total expenses from their wage, uh, but that is made bearable by the fact that the fundamental costs they are having, including you know, health uh, coverage, are covered by the state. And that is that, that is the way to look at the government doing it. And the great thing about being a speculator, of course, is, Steve, you don't need a great deal of education to, you know, you just need... It's well, the a, more it, that gets in the way, the more you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just need to be able to push buttons and uh, and mm. snort cocaine and, um, mm. uh, and, and just get on with it. Whereas doctors, you know, they've got to train and we charge them to train. That's the ironic thing, isn't it? So actually, with one of the first things we could do with this, uh, with this extra spending... Uh, by the government is we could actually make education free all the way through, perhaps, so that we do get people training locally without having to rack up massive debt in the process. And this is one thing that I've been a big particular bane for me, because when I went through universities, it happened there was a period where there was free education in Australia. Yeah, like But, the, but, the, but yeah. the reality of it is that it, it, to get free means that if you fail, you fail, and nobody complains if you fail apart from yourself. Um, so the the standards to get in depend upon your results and your your capacity to to study, not on how much you paid. And the attitude of students was, if they got failed, it was a fair cop because they didn't work hard enough. Uh, the attitude, which is really I've seen it you know, quite blatantly develop over the last. 30 or 40 years as the obsession about students paying for their education has become overwhelming, uh, is that students think they've bought their degree and they're bloody annoyed if they don't get given it. And administrators compound it by, because that's the revenue source for them, they want as many people as possible to pass. So there's been an obvious and dramatic lowering in educational standards directly out of a result of trying to make it privatised. Right, well, there's a conversation for another day. But uh, just going back to mm. Wynne Godley and this whole idea of sectoral balances. So uh, if, if the private sector is 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 growing uh, then uh, ha, ha, does it work the other way around so the government spends the private sector grows if the private sector is growing I, I assume the assumption is that the government budget deficit reduces because if the private sector is growing then you're going to have more tax paid so the deficit is going to be smaller is that the way that model that, that we're, we're back in the stock flow issue here and the question is is, is more private money being created uh, than the government money? Because if you if you're looking at the, the like the private sector grows, that can be a rate of the rate of turnover increasing. So velocity of money times money uh, rising, uh, and there's but there's no increase in the amount of money in existence. So if the government spends less, you've got less fiat money creation. Can that be replaced by more private money creation? No. That's really the issue, right. and that comes through bank loans. So when a yeah, yeah okay so the bank loans out sadly it normally goes into housing but in theory it could be going into productive purposes so the bank says okay I'm gonna I'm gonna lend you some money then it's exactly the same process isn't it they're lending money which they've created in effect which is uh, uh, sits in sits in your bank account uh, and yeah it's part of the money money making process so the government needs to create less in that case what happens if they do keep on 
happening though. So how, what's to stop? If, if, if this is a direct relationship, so I can understand why if the government creates money, it goes into the private sector, that money is, is new and it's, it's gone from a government deficit into the private sector. But what's to stop it going the other way where, okay, the private sector is doing very well, it's creating money because it's borrowing a great deal. What's to stop the government also saying, well, we're going to carry on doing what we're doing. We're going to keep on issuing a, a large deficit. So both would grow at the same time, wouldn't they? They could, but what you tend to find, and this, this turns up in the stats, one of America's stats in Australia's and Canada's and so on, is that when the government gets obsessed with, with running, not running a deficit, but trying to run a surplus, that reduces the rate of growth of the money supply created by the government sector and pushes people into negative equity. This, this, this is the most important point I want people to get their heads around. Uh, when you're looking at financial assets, which are claimed by one entity on another entity, then this, if you add the two claims together, you get zero. And the same thing applies at the actual, uh, the, the, the global level as well. The sum of financial assets minus financial liabilities equals zero. So if the government is trying to reduce how it's adding to its own negative equity, then it's adding less positive equity to the private sector. And the private sector, if the government starts to achieve you know, declining levels of negative equity, so it's getting close towards zero, that's driving down the positive equity of the, pri of the private sector. And the um, when you so whichever way you cut society up, negative on one side means positive on the other. So the government having negative equity enables positive equity on the on the non-government sector. But the banking the banking sector has to be in positive equity. The bankers, if a bank has liabilities greater than its assets, short-term liabilities greater than its uh, short-term assets, uh, then it's bankrupt. Okay, so the banking sector has to be in positive equity. And that therefore means the non-banking world, which includes the government in this case, is in precisely the same negative equity. So you want to cut down just on the target of the non-bank public and say, how do you get the non-bank public into positive equity? The only way to do that is for the government to run a deficit. Right. So let's go, uh, sort of get it, but let's, let's go through it step by step. So we had that situation where I create a billion pounds worth of extra spending by the government. I'm the government. I spend a billion pounds. I issue a billion pounds worth of bonds. That, the, the, the billion pounds goes into the, the, into the bank accounts of the commercial banks and they change their um, they change the reserves that have been created by that extra billion pounds into into the bonds that have been issued by the government. So there's a billion pounds swilling around the economy that wasn't swilling around before. Uh, but then also in the same economy, strangely, uh, everybody goes, "Well, hey, you know, thing, things are really going well. Uh, I'm going to, even though the government is pushing out a billion pounds, I'm going to borrow a billion pounds." So there's a billion pounds, which is issued out by the by the banks, what's to stop that happening? Nothing. That can that can happen at the same time. So, uh, yeah. but what see that then means that the billion pounds uh, doesn't increase like because when you when the private sector borrows off the private banks, they get a dollar for dollar increase in their assets from the borrowing and a dollar for dollar increase in their liabilities, which is the debt they owe to the banking sector. But there's no change in the net financial position of the private non-banking sector when it borrows from the banking from the banks. The only way the private non-financial yeah, private non-financial sector can have an increase in its equity is if the government goes more into negative equity. So when when you get a, a government that is uh, willingly going into negative equity and spending at that rate, 
more positive equity is turning up in the hands of the non-bank public. And that tends to mean less desire to borrow and spend. So it, it doesn't mean that necessarily you could get the case where the, the, the non-bank public decides to borrow and, and gamble at the same time as the government spending. But generally speaking, the government creating a, running a deficit creates more money in the hands of the non-bank uh, public and makes gives them less encouragement to want to go and get into debt with the banking sector. Right. Okay. So that's the reason. That's the balance. It's because people won't, in effect. So in, in, so banks could, but they probably won't because there won't be the demand there because people are benefiting from the fact that more money is being created by by the government. Okay. That makes sense. There, mm. There's the uh, what we haven't talked about is because we've been living in this closed economy here. What we haven't talked about is uh, is uh, the foreign sector. So um, it, it's not just the government versus non-government, is it? Because, well, in that non-government, in, in Godley's model, uh, it's not just the public and private sector. The, the non-government included in that non-government is the foreign sector. So yeah. there is the yeah. question, isn't there, what's to stop that government deficit finding its way into the hands of people who use it to buy stuff from overseas or maybe... Absolutely you know. nothing. And, and that fact, if you look back at the, the biggest stimulus done during the global financial crisis was the Australian government stimulus. <laughs> and that, Where everyone bought flat screen yeah. TVs from overseas. From China. From so China. the money, mm. the, fundamentally, people got, got Australian dollars, used those Australian dollars to go shopping at the local Harvey Norman. That's the local... Uh, disparaged chain in Australia for <clears throat> buying uh, electronic devices. And Harvey Norman then go used that to buy foreign reserves, which were then sent to China to pay for the TV sets that they were being manufactured. So you had a dramatic leakage of that money out of the Australian system into purchases of Remindi. Mm. And, that's, and, and that's the weakness that uh, if you, and this is one of like, you know, I've got this ongoing fight with MMT, which I may finally decide to do the analytics on using a Minsky model and work out whether I'm correct or they are. They, they wave their hands and say nothing, nothing wrong with running a deficit. My point of view is that if you continue running a deficit at some point, you have such a degree of foreign debt, debt not owed in your own currency, but a foreign currency, that you lose the monetary sovereignty that's an essential part of the MMT argument. Mm. So um, I think that that is the real danger. And that's one reason that Japan has been able to continue running huge government deficits indefinitely. Government debt in Japan is now about two and a half times GDP. Uh, and it's doing that because it has no effect on its foreign balance because it's still generally running a trade surplus but it is devaluing the yen a great deal isn't it and that's the it is now but that that's more rising interest rates so the, mm. the 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 um the japanese central bank has decided they don't want to put up rates um so they're not doing it and that's showing the capacity of the central bank to issue bonds at below the market rate so the example we gave last last podcast about not having to match the secondary rate uh, in the primary market. That's exactly what the Bank of, of, of Japan is doing. And uh, and then that means, of course, that people who buy Japanese government bonds get a lower rate of return than if they buy American government bonds or European bonds. So they're not this, they're selling Japanese assets and buying 
uh, American and European assets, mm. and that's driving down the value of the yen. Right, but it's not just assets, is it? So if if if, if uh, it, it might be in Japan's case right now, but if uh, if if the government issues a lot of money, let's say it's the UK, the government issues a great deal of money, and uh, more, uh, and so uh, people are buying more from overseas because there's nothing produced locally. That would be the reason. Uh, then all that money f- flowing out of the country to to buy stuff obviously is going to impact the exchange rate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's partly what's, what's happening with the you know, fall in the exchange rate for the UK as well. Its manufacturing sector has been destroyed under under Thatcher and and Blair, and the belief that services could replace manufacturing, but that hasn't happened. The, the UK has been moving further and further towards a chronic trade deficit from its lack of an industrial policy, and therefore mm. that money creation could turn up in you know, a, a larger trade deficit and pressure to devalue the pound. Right. So hence, you know, if you're looking at this sectoral balance and you say, well, okay, it's it's not public versus private, it's actually government versus non-government, and a big chunk of that non, non-government non is the foreign sector, and you want to stop that leakage to overseas, the only way you can do that really is... Uh, Use some of that uh, that government money that you've uh, that, that you're creating to to invest in infrastructure, which is going to provide more domestic industry, so you don't get that flow of money overseas, to the same extent. Yeah, you, you have you have to have an industrial policy as mm. well, and that is something which uh, I mean I, I can't accuse neoclassical you know, economics of having a decent industrial policy either, uh, but that's a, a fundamentally important way in which people who advocate MMT should be developing their arguments because you do want. Um, again, we're leaving up the whole climate change issue, but you, you we're going to talk about that next week. Have... Pleased to know. So uh, save so oh, save it go. all for okay, that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hooray! Hooray! Okay. Um, so that that's um, that that money. You know, you want you want the infrastructure created. You want the investment done as well. And if you want to make a division between government money creation and private money creation, then the best explanation for private money creation is to give entrepreneurs money. And that's not what banks do. They give speculators money at the moment. So we need to change the nature of the of the of the private banking sector far more than we need to worry about government money creation and have the private sector rewarded, the banking sector rewarded for lending to entrepreneurs, in some cases whether they, whether they succeed or fail, rather than the money going to speculators and driving up the price of houses and shares. So final question, I, short but sweet this week, but it's I, I think hopefully mm-hmm. we've carried a lot of people with us because uh, I, I think we've explained it in a fairly straightforward fashion. Just the, the, the one thing where the economy is going really, really well, there's a lot of private sector spending, the government needs to do less, there's less demand for government money, so how does the uh, but there's a lot of money out there still. How does the government actually I've got two questions here. How does the government roll back the amount of money that's in circulation if it believes there's there's too much? Does it do that through through tax? And secondly, in all of this, you know, the central banks, the Bank of England for example, if you ask them what they do, they'd say a big chunk of what they do is control the amount of money that's in circulation but it sounds like that's a job for the government what what, what are central banks doing if uh, in this modern monetary theory world yeah well let's let's um <laughs> go back and open the first one I've asked two questions at once rather than this this is monday morning i'm still waking up <laughs> okay well so the so the first question there we are, i'm starting to lose track of it myself is how how yeah. do you if you've got too much money in circulation how do you pull it back do you do it through tax okay 
Well, this, that's that's one of the arguments which you, you, modern monetary theory says that taxation is a way of re- reducing the amount of money created by the government sector. Otherwise, you'd have runaway inflation. Whether you can vary tax rates or not is a serious issue. And MMT would does people in MMT do concede it's extremely hard to vary the tax rate as a control mechanism. Nobody enjoys being taxed. Mm. Uh, I would see a possibility of selling uh, as, as controlling the amount of money that banks can sell into the um uh, secondary market at the moment that's entirely the, the, ch- the choice of the banks is the amount they sell and they sell in a huge proportion of the bonds are on sold to non-bank financial institutions i would rather see uh the use of government bonds uh, like a, 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 a that uh the to match the uh, to counteract the government money creation to some extent you have bonds being sold to people uh, with the money that they get out of government money creation, and then that bond gives them an income flow on the interest on the bonds. But you you take the actual creation of money out by selling more bonds to the non-bank public. That is one possible way to go about right. it. But it is extremely complicated uh, because. But it's a bit like pre- in a bit like yeah. premium bonds. Though people buy premium bonds in 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 the UK, which you know they 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 buy it. They doesn't pay interest, but they think they might win a million pounds. It doesn't happen, by the way. I won twenty five pounds once. That's the best I've ever done. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what you're saying is, yeah, the money is sitting there in the reserves in a, in a bank. Uh, the moment that bank uh, was to sell that bond, then that is reducing the uh, the money supply because people are using real money that's out there in the economy to buy it. So if they sold yeah. those bonds yeah. to the public, that reduces the money supply. Like yeah. that, but, that makes but sense. It, but it is, a, it is a balancing act because like the, the scale of government taxation largely reflects the scale of government services because the bigger your services are, the more you've got to tax because what's creating money is the gap between the two. Mm. And letting the gap get out of hand is partly where you get your uh, enormous money creation from. Now, the countries that have the biggest public service, services are the Nordic countries. And they have taxing. very high very high tax rate, but they've also got very high spending rates. So the spending rate causes the need for a high tax rate. Otherwise, you have too big a gap between spending and taxation and therefore inflationary pressures. Mm. But those societies, when you look at the, you know, the people's overall statement of their level of happiness and satisfaction, they end up being the happiest countries on the planet, not because they're being taxed, but because the fundamental services you need to consume to have a, 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 a decent life in a civilised society are provided by the state as a matter of course. And that then takes the pressure off. The money which you get, you earn from your own day-to-day uh, income is for your discretionary spending, not for your essential spending. And that seems to make people feel a lot happier, and I'm not amazed. Well, uh, it could be that, couldn't it? Or people are just fundamentally happy uh, sitting naked with uh, w- with beautiful women and who are thrashing you with a birch stick. That You're watching be... too many advertisements. <laughs> that could be what's making them happy. Uh, so, okay, all of that makes sense. But my second question was, uh, what's the role mm. of the central bank in all of this? They seem to think that they're responsible for managing the supply of money, but it seems that the government really has it in hand. Yeah, so the what's government's the, got what's the, the point of the central the treasury, bank? The, the treasury is the money creator. Mm. Um, so the central bank, fundamentally, it's I see its role as when it buys the bonds uh, off the private banking sector, uh, it's effectively... If, it, if, it, if you give its bond growing as if, if, if its ownership of bonds is roughly proportional to the scale of the economy, then it's buying about three percent of uh, of bonds per year, and that's roughly equal to the interest rate on the uh, on the government debt. So you don't get a compounding effect 
uh, on. So when when you think about bonds being sold, not just to cover the deficit, but also the interest on a, on outstanding debt, uh, the central bank's purchases largely counter the effect of the latter uh, element in causing an exploding level of both government money and, and government debt. So um, I, I think the central bank's role is a, is a mopping up operation, not the lead operation that they think they have courtesy of being brainwashed by neoclassical economists. Right. Okay. Well, we might visit that again in a future episode. You know, what should be the role of uh, of central banks? But look, you'll be mm. very pleased to know next week we are going to talk about the climate. Uh, in particular, uh, how do we price energy and how do we price pollution? So uh, when, for example, I uh, buy something in the supermarket and it's full of plastic packaging, am I paying the real price for that? Uh, is the company that's producing it paying the real price? Are we? Is, is the pricing mechanism part of what's uh, got us into the mess that we're in? We'll look at that uh, and many other questions as well besides. But we'll look at all of that, pricing, energy and pollution next week. Good to talk, Steve. Did I, mate? Okay. Yeah, we uh, caused a bit of controversy, or Steve did anyway, a few weeks back when he talked about the need for zero growth if we're going to meet net zero emissions targets. But, you know, is he right on that? Because, you know, understandably, a few people came back and said, well, look, no, can't we just make more efficient use of the energy that we've got? Like cars, for example, now obviously are more efficient than they used to be. So can't we do more of that sort of thing? Just make more efficient use of the energy that we consume and still have growth because the Western world and in particular developing nations are not going to accept the the concept of zero growth as the only way of meeting net zero. So that's next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. You're going to have to wait a week before you can hear that, but uh, we'll see you then. Enjoy your week. See you next week. The Debunking Economics podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.